This morning we are completing our journey in the garden. I have to admit, as working on this last message, uh, the journey in the garden has grown on me. It's actually grown quite a bit on me. And quite frankly, I'd like to spend more time in the garden because there are so many things in there that we could cover, that we could explore, that are simply rich and meaningful to us. So in part one, just to refresh your memory, in part one, we looked at the devil and all the schemes of the devil and how he tempts us to sin. And then in part two, we looked at sin and the effects of sin. And we saw how sin corrupts us so thoroughly that we can't save ourselves. Yet in spite of this, last week, in spite of Satan, in spite of sin, last week we saw how God was gracious, gracious, how he, even in the garden, bestowed his grace. We saw that though we hide in sin, he calls to us. We saw that he covers our shame with his righteousness. And he loves us so much that he desires no one to have everlasting damnation. He desires people to have life and life everlasting. So this morning, we're actually going to do another part of grace, so to speak. It is the grace of salvation. You see, even in the garden, and this is key, if you only get this today, this is it. Even in the garden, God in his grace promised us a Savior who would conquer Satan, sin, and death so that we might have new and everlasting life. I'm going to say it again because I want you to get this in your bones. Even in the garden, God in his grace promised a Savior who would conquer Satan, sin, and death so that we might have new and everlasting life. So this morning, we're going to see how God did that. We're going to take a look that Satan is cursed, Satan is crushed, and sin and death are destroyed. So let's go into it. Satan is cursed. Now, I realize that some of you might be thinking, but hold on, Pastor, didn't we cover that in the first part of the series here? And we did cover the devil, but it was the schemes of the devil, not God's action on and about the devil. So, Satan is cursed. Let's take a look. Verse 14 from our reading, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So when God said, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, God's not making a comparison about the serpent, Satan, but the serpent and like cattle or horses, or any other animal. He's not comparing that. He's actually saying this of the serpent who is Satan, the moral agent who rebelled against God. That is who God is cursing. See, none of the animals are cursed, but it is one and one only. And he says, God says, 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So why is that important? I mean, okay, it's going to be on your belly, and you're going to go all throughout the dust. Well, you have to understand the curse of eating dust is actually a proclamation of defeat of Satan. The curse of eating dust is a proclamation of defeat of Satan. It is this, because dust is a permanent symbol and constant reminder of the degradation of Satan. Dust. How can dust be that? Have you ever heard the phrase, eat my dust? Have you ever, <laughs> you know, we don't say that really as adults now. It just sounds a little hokey, but you know, but you see it in movies, right? Eat my dust. It is, what's that meant to say? It is meant to say that I am victorious over you. You have nothing but the dust of the ground. See, you have to understand in life, we get that, but also in scripture, dust is a symbol of defeat, right? Even us, right? Because of sin, we go back to dust, right? You hear that at funerals. You hear that on Ash Wednesday. This is the curse for the serpent. Dust. Interesting. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 22 and 23. It says, Thus the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise up my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Dust. A permanent symbol of the defeat and degradation of Satan. And it is permanent, by the way. This is ongoing. Ongoing until there's a new heaven and a new earth. That is the curse for Satan. So Satan is cursed. Satan is crushed. Verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot in that one verse, so we have to slow down with this. We're going to take it section by section. The first part is, I will put, that says, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So, how many of you remember... Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first one in the series. Raise your hand if you remember that one. Okay? Indiana Jones, it's a classic good popcorn movie. Indiana Jones is afraid of nothing except snakes. He comes in, there's this big room, and it's just slithering with snakes. And he goes, why did there have to be snakes? Right? I hate snakes. As a matter of fact, if you look at the top ten list of things that people fear, well, first of all, uh, public speaking is often number one, followed by death, which means that you would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, just to let you know. 
But in that top ten list, snakes are often right in that particular list. Hate snakes, right? It seems to be somehow built into humanity. Well, it is because there is enmity between the serpent and the woman. Enmity means hostility, hatred, animosity. Listen, in 1987, there was a professor in Louisiana. He did a study, and he took uh, fake reptiles, like a rubber turtle. And uh, I want to get the other one that he did. Uh, Turtles, snakes, oh, it just says other reptiles. So he put a bunch of these little rubber reptiles in the road to see what people would do. Now, if you were a turtle, you did pretty well. Actually, people would go out of their way, or they might even stop and try to pick up the turtle, which they didn't know it was fake, but bring the turtle to safety. Oh, not so much for snakes. He saw people specifically go out of their way to run it over. One person ran it over, backed up again over it, and then went away. There was a policeman who ran it over, stopped, got out, and was going to shoot it. And But the professor said, no, no, it's a, it's a fake snake. Do, do you get how the animosity, that's the hatred of the serpent. And God says there will be such animosity, there will be wrath between you and humanity. And God says, it will be my wrath, because he's the one who says, I will put hatred or enmity between you and the serpent. Ezekiel, chapter 25, verse 15, 17. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully, revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul, to destroy in never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines. I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Okay? You got that part. That's just the first part. Of this verse 15. Look, if you want to circle uh, one verse in your Bible to go back to, Genesis 3.15 is one to do it. And we're going to get to the greater reason right now. Right now, It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And if you want to underline that one, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophetic declaration by God, and it's sometimes called the Proto-Evangelon, which means first gospel. Proto-Evangelon or the beginning of the good news. That's what gospel means, by the way, good news. So when we say we are evangelical, we say we are of the good news. Luther's thought this was one of the most important verses in the Bible. So let's look at it carefully. It says, and between your offspring and her offspring, here's where grammar comes in, very handy, it is important, because we can't quite get that 
from just reading it in English. When it says between your offspring, speaking of the devil's offspring or Satan's offspring, it is in the plural. It means many. It means your children, as in many children. And we're not talking about a horror movie here. We're not talking Spawn of the Devil, I think, or I think that was some horror movie at some time. What we're talking about here when it says the offspring or the children of the devil, it means anyone who rejects God. This is sobering. It means anyone who rejects God is of the devil. Scripture is very clear about this. In Ephesians, talks about following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 44, he said, he said to the Jews, by the way, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when it says between your offspring, it means all who reject God, all who reject Christ. But when it says between your offspring and her offspring, her offspring is singular meaning only one. It doesn't mean all of the children from Eve. It just means that there is one. Now, this holds up also in the promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham, the seed. So, Paul clarifies this in Galatians. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And your offspring who is Christ. That's Galatians 3.16, if you're interested. In addition, this is very interesting. In addition, isn't it normally it's said that the seed comes from the man, right? We normally say that. The seed comes from the man. But here in our text, in the Garden of Eden, it's very different because it says the seed comes from the woman. I mean, so that's very different. And this is the only place in the Bible, the only place in the Bible where it talks about the seed of a woman. So who can that be? That's why we did our reading from Matthew today. So we've been studying this in our Bible study, both Matthew and Luke. Did Joseph and Mary have Jesus together? Was not Joseph. He was not involved, was he? It was from the power of the Holy Spirit. Born of a virgin. Not the seed of man, but of God. That's what we're talking about here, all the way back in the garden. So here's the point. Against all of the offspring of Satan will come but one, Jesus. And then it says, he, meaning Jesus, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A better sense of this is actually he shall fatally bruise your head and you shall only bruise his heel. Or a simpler way to say it is this. He shall crush your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. You can hear the distinction in that, right? That Satan is going to be crushed. Now, was Jesus bruised? Oh, in a very painful, painful manner, right? He went to the cross for us. Scripture declares in Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, right? There's the bruise. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Satan is cursed. Satan is crushed. And now we will see that in Jesus, sin and death are defeated. Now, in your notes, if you're using your sermon notes, you notice I have a little sidebar on this. Here's the sidebar. We're actually going to understand this last point. In Jesus, sin and death were defeated by going to Romans chapter 5. We are going to do this because there is a principle involved in understanding Scripture. And the principle is this. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. We say, if we have a question, where is that clarified in Scripture? Did Jesus really conquer sin and death? Was sin and death defeated? Scripture declares that in many places. Today, we're simply going to take a look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Okay? In really simple terms, you can just remember it this way. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's it. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. You see, what is sin? Remember, we talked about this, but what is sin? Sin is a rejection of God. Sin is a rejection of God's command. It wasn't this thing that went on them called sin. No, they sinned because they rejected God's commandment. And because of that, their nature was now corrupted. In one of our Bible classes, we talked about uh, DNA, right? Doing your whole DNA background, finding out uh, all of your history. Has anybody done that? I know a couple in the Bible study did, a few others. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting to find out your ancestry and your DNA. Well, our DNA actually goes back to Adam and Eve. And our nature has been corrupted by sin. How do I know this? Is anybody sinless here? No, right? We don't sin because we make mistakes. We sin because we're sinners. That's it. And there's no exception to this. It says in Paul, Paul wrote, because all sinned. It means everyone. If you go to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And just to be clear later on, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, if you read Romans chapter 3, he pounds away and pounds away and pounds away until it looks bleak and hopeless and very dark. And quite frankly, in the garden with Adam and Eve, when they were expelled, it looked very bleak and dark, didn't it? But our God is not a God of darkness. He is a God of light. 
Just as darkness and sin blanketed paradise, God in the midst of it brings light. And he does so through the promise of the seed, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Now in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says, therefore, as one man's condemnation led to, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so because Adam sinned, all men are now condemned, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, underline obedience, one man's obedience, many were made righteous. So Jesus Christ is the only one, the only one who led a perfect, sinless life. Was he tempted? Of course he was. Do you remember? He, out in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil. But I want to focus on something near the very end. Do you remember the night before he was betrayed? Where did he go with his disciples after the Lord's Supper? He went to a garden, didn't he? Now, I can't push that too much, but the parallels are so amazing. Because what did he do in the garden? I mean, think, yeah, he prayed. He prayed hard. Think about how he would have been tempted to say, no, I don't want to go through that. Saying, Dad, I don't want to. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. See, the death that he was going to go to was so painful that we've created a word for it, which is excruciating, which means out of the cross. That's the pain he was going to suffer. And he prayed, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. In the garden, he was obedient, wasn't he? Whereas Adam was not, Christ was. Obedient to the point of death. And because of his death, his obedience, his life, we then can have his righteousness. And so the point that Paul is leading up here is now in verses 20 and 21. I'm going to start halfway through 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, where it says grace abounded all the more, I, it doesn't quite get to the full sense of it. It's, it's more like um, this, this uh, excess of grace, this super increased possibility, probability, this super bounded grace that just poured out. Grace that knew no limits. You see, in the garden, God wasn't wringing his hands like, oh, they sinned. Now what am I going to do? No, his grace was abounding evermore. You know the song, Grace, 
God's grace, it says grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. This is what's going on in the garden. Grace, unmerited, unearned favor of God was announced in the garden. In the garden, in the garden, the promise of saving grace in Christ Jesus was given. And if you don't get anything else but that, that would be what you should get today. In the garden, the promise of saving grace in Christ Jesus was given. Paul in chapter 6 of Romans says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I hope you can understand the assurance of what was proclaimed in the garden, fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, sin, death was destroyed. No more. Because Jesus conquered Satan and sin, we are conquerors through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not that we somehow become superhuman. No, we are conquerors not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. Now listen to this. I want to leave you with the words from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, listen to this. Sit up straight on this one. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, brothers and sisters, in the promise of Jesus Christ, who is our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.